Thank you for joining us today. We're excited you came across this message. The sermon you are about to watch is from our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Mark. Up to this point in this series, we've seen the establishment of Jesus' identity as the Son of God and the beginning of his earthly ministry. We've studied his teaching as he has taught through parables, sermons, and daily life with his disciples. And we've seen his miraculous power over nature, sin, sickness, and spiritual darkness. Our entire study through the Gospel of Mark thus far is available in our feed. We'd love for you to join in. If you're joining us for the first time, I want to be the first to say welcome to Hope Church. Go ahead, open up the Hope Church LV app or visit us at hopechurchlv.com and click connect with us to fill out a short digital connection card. Once again, thanks for joining us today. My family, my family, good morning. My family, my family, good morning. Give it up for that worship set, man. Man. Well, I got a, uh, got a question to ask you. Um, ever step into a situation where time and space remind you that you've been here before? As if you're watching the same movie scene over and over again. Everything seems familiar. That's what the French would call Deja vu. It's the idea of already seeing something that you're currently experiencing. But there's two sides to deja vu. On the one side, yes, you're already seeing something you have currently experienced. But on the other side, there's this feeling that things seem still, things can, uh, things can still seem unfamiliar. It's the idea that something can be familiar and yet still have pieces that seem unknown. Now, can that be possible? You be so familiar with something, and yet you still miss the main point of the scene. Well, there is some reality to this because I believe that every Christian at some point has deja vu in your life. I believe that in God's sovereignty, at times, he recreates things in our life because we have missed what he was trying to teach us. Okay, I'll, I'll say it again for up top. I believe in God's sovereignty. He either allows or recreates scenes in our life because we have seemingly missed what he was trying to teach us. And this is why I need every single one of you today to lean in. Whether you know it or not, you face deja vu in your Christian walk. You say, God, I've been here before. Maybe it's a familiar scene of yet another bill on your table that you can't pay. But yet you forgot all the other times God paid your bill. Maybe it's the issue of your marriage. We have one more fight, God. I can't make it through. And yet you forgot all the other times God gave you grace to bring you and your spouse back to the table of reconciliation. Maybe it's your body. Another health issue. You're saying, God, this is going to take me out. And yet you forgot all the other times God healed your body and made you whole. Listen, I, I believe this. God recreates scenes in our life, not so that we can be familiar with the scene, but so that we may be familiar with the God standing in the middle of the scene. Listen, if y'all going to clap, clap. All right? Um, come on, man. We, um, y'all know I love y'all, man. And this is where the disciples find themselves today familiar scene. 
and yet the God standing right beside them, it's as if they don't really know him. Today we hop back into the, the book of Mark. In fact, we just finished a, a series called Kill Joys. Did that, did that series bless your soul? Kill Joys? Your soul? But now we're back in the book of Mark. A few months ago, Pastor Scott preached Mark 6 where Christ feeds 5,000. Christ literally feeds 5,000 people with homemade biscuits popping out of his hand. I mean, homemade, organic, southern-style biscuits come from the man's hand. Come on, man. That's real organic, real homemade. All right? His disciples watched this scene. But the question is, did they learn anything about him? Understand this. You can be around Jesus, see his miracles, be in his proximity, and still not see him for who he is. So today we're going to be in Mark chapter 8. Now, as you turn to Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, let me set the scene for you, okay? Christ gets done popping these homemade southern-style biscuits out of his hand, <laughs> feeds 5,000 people, and after this miracle... His fame skyrockets. Everyone knows who he is. He's a famous person in all the land, okay? And after these miracles, he, he and his disciples, they get into a boat. And for the next several months, they go into a Gentile area to preach and teach and heal. Now, what's the big deal? Well, Jews and Gentiles did not get along. So Christ is now behind enemy lines, right? Okay? And he's trying to teach his disciples, I'm not only salvation for the Jews, but I have a heart for the Gentiles as well. So Mark chapter 7, we see Christ. We last see him. He heals a, a young girl who was possessed by a demon. And then he makes a man who was deaf and mute speak and hear. And when you put all these miracles together, what you get is fame. And you, and you all live in Las Vegas. Whenever someone has fame, a crowd is soon to follow. And this is where the moment of deja vu is for these disciples. The scene seems all too familiar. It's as if they're watching Mark 6 all over again. Thousands of people are crowding around Jesus. They're wanting to be around him. And the disciples, they see the similar situation. They see a similar problem. They will see a similar result. Why? Because this is indeed a moment of deja vu. But the question is, have they learned anything about Jesus? Okay? In fact, let's be honest. Many of us have sat in church all our life, deja vu moments, and yet still, we still don't know all about Jesus. So listen, I'm, I'm going to read Mark chapter 8, okay? As I read Mark chapter 8, I'm going to give you just some brief narrative, kind of keep it 30,000 foot view up here, all right? And after that, we'll come down and give us four real-time realities for our souls, all right? So now, pick me up. Mark chapter 8, we'll read verses 1 through 10. It says this, in those days when, G I'm sorry, in those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat. Now, when it says in those days, it meant that all these miracles happened around this area, okay? Now, a great crowd had gathered around Jesus. Now, hear me. 4,000 people followed Christ into the desert. 4,000 people followed this man into the wilderness. This should let you know how famous he was. I mean, they're following him in the desert. In fact, uh, Matthew 15 has the same account. It talks about Christ in the desert. He's healing. He's preaching. He's teaching. He's doing all these things. They follow him now into the desert. 
It keeps going, and it says, and they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have had nothing to eat. Now, let me tell you something. You got to be a bad boy to hold my attention for three days, and I have not eaten a thing. You got to be a bad boy to keep my attention for 72 hours, and I have not put a thing in my mouth, and I'm not mad about it. Oh, the magnificence of this Jesus. The timber of his voice. The touch of his hand. Enough to arrest your soul for three days, and you forgot that you never ate a thing. There is nobody like Christ Jesus. He holds their attention now for three days straight. And he says, and if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. In verse 4, his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Disciples are going, hey, Jesus, great speech. Sounds great. But man, we're in the desert, buddy. Ain't no in and out around here. How are you going to feed these 4,000 people? And in Christ's very calm, collected way, verse 5, he says, and he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. Now, here's a miracle. Christ is now feeding 4,000 people. As he's breaking bread, more bread is coming up from his hand. This is, I can't explain it no more. As, he, as the man is breaking bread, more bread is coming up from his hands. Real Pillsbury Doughboy. I mean, he's going, you get, bread, you get bread, you get, I mean, this man has bread coming out of his body. It says in verse 8, he feeds these 4,000 people, right? And verse 8 says, and they ate and were satisfied. Now, I love this. He's not only healing, preaching, teaching, he's also feeding, meaning he satisfied them completely. What more do you, what, what more do you want when, when your stomach is full and your soul is fed? He says, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. And immediately they got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Now, we don't know much about Dalmanutha, but what's going on here is Christ is crisscrossing the sea. In Mark chapter 6, he was on the Jewish side. In Mark chapter 7, he's now on the Gentile side. And now in Mark chapter 8, he's back on the Jewish side, which meant that most of his healing and preaching and teaching probably all happened in this area, okay? So now, are we all understood? We all got it? Yeah. All right. Now, I'm about to leave the suburbs. <laughs> all right? I'm coming to your heart now. Four real-time realities for our souls. Three of these things will help us see Christ clearly. And one of these things will really penetrate our hearts because we all happen to live there. All right? So now, the first reality I want to show you is this. That Jesus consistently shows compassion. Verse 2, Christ says, I have compassion for them. You're saying, Pastor Ricky, what's the big deal? The Bible is full of Christ's compassion. What's the big deal now? You're right. But this is the only time in all four Gospels where he actually says it from his mouth. 
Every other time, it's a third-person party watching him do something and say, he must have compassion. But in this text, it's as if Christ arrests the story. He says, I need no one else to tell them I have compassion for them. I'm telling them from my own mouth. I have compassion for you. Hear me. I love this. Christ's compassion is always coupled with his sympathy. Christ knew what it felt like to be hungry. Matthew 4, 40 days in the desert. Let me tell you something. There is not one ache, one groan, one fear, one anxiety you have that my Savior does not know about. Hebrews 4 says, we serve a God who was able to sympathize with us. Who told you that Christ does not know what you're going through? Who told you that? It's not in the Bible. There's not one thing that you go through that my Savior does not know about. Now, I love this now. Um, now, if we're going to really paint the picture of Christ's compassion, you have to understand the word compassion. It simply means to have sympathy for those who are suffering. But to feel the weight of this word, understand it now in the Greek language. The word compassion in Greek is the word splagnizomai. Say splagnizomai. Let the spit come from your mouth. Splagni Hit the back of your neighbor's neck. Ah, splagnizomai. It, it means the twisting of the, of the intestines. It means to feel something so deeply, you feel it in the pit of your stomach. Christ says, the thought of these people going home without eating grips me so much, I feel it in the pit of my stomach. I have compassion for them. Now, here's, here's the part that gets me every time. When Mark says compassion, he's not talking about compassion for people you like. Okay, I'll go ahead. All right. <laughs> he's saying compassion for those who are far off. Dare I say, enemies. Jesus says, I have a tendency to care about people who don't care about me. I have a tendency to love people who do not love me, which was all of us before we became Christians. Romans 5 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus has compassion for people he should not have compassion for. If you don't know Jesus Christ, there is no other God greater than him. He loves people who do not love him back. Why? I don't know. It's because he simply loves us. Now, here's the part that gets me every time, Miss Mona. It says, as he gives this speech, he calls his disciples to himself, as if to say, I should not be the only one having compassion here. Okay, we're going here now, all right? To be a Jesus follower means you do what he did. So let me ask you the question. When's the last time you've had splagnizomai for someone? When's the last time you've seen something that pierced your heart so deep it gripped you to the pit of your stomach? I want to be honest with y'all, man. I never want to stand up here as if I'm a perfect 
Christian, I'm not. There's been plenty of times when folks have told me something they're going through, and I've hit them with the, ah, sorry to hear that. I'll pray for you. I'm not knocking prayer lists if you actually pray. But I think we've used it as an excuse to not step into people's problems and hurts. How many times folks have told us we are struggling? You go, you know what, when I, when I find time in my schedule, when I feel comfortable, I'll hopefully pray for you. I'm not here to castigate. I've done the same thing. But that's not the compassion that Christ shows in the text. In fact, I'll say it this way. True compassion does not just feel. It reaches out. You know, what breaks my heart is, you don't know this, but we have ministries actually here at Hope Church, the care ministry, the life center, who actually want to run alongside hurting broken people. And not just for you, but for you to help you grow in your own walk that you may also run alongside hurting broken people. And if you have a situation where you need our help, go to our guest services table and find out more information about us, but we're here to want to help and serve you. Now, here's the cool part about the text. Christ makes their problem his problem. That's compassion. Compassion says, I have nothing to do with this, but yet I'm going to make your problem my problem. Ask you a question. Is that what we're known for? I'm not talking about Hope Church, the, the, the big machine. I'm talking about individuals when you go back to your job and your neighborhood. Is it known that Miss Mona has a tendency of making other folks' problem her problem? But I want to be fair to us now. I'm going to be fair. We're hit all the time, social media, so much stuff. You're saying, Ricky, I can't have compassion for everybody. I mean, am I right? We're always hit with so much stuff. Hear me. That's true. But the Christian, the whole church, has got to have tough skin to keep a soft heart. Don't let the world or even church folk make your heart turn cold towards Jesus. Okay? So I'll say it this way. It's human to want to avoid the trouble of giving help, but it's divine. It's godly to be moved with such compassion that we are compelled to help. If Jesus consistently showed compassion, so should we. Amen? Hey, y'all quiet, man. I don't know if this sermon is good or not. I'm going to keep going. Jesus' followers, our next point, are you ready? Our next point, our next point is Jesus' followers forgetfully question. All right, here we go. Jesus' followers have spiritual amnesia. Now, they, 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 they just hear Christ give this most compassionate speech. He loves these people. At the first sign, they go, ah, got a problem. Uh, we're out here in the desert, Christ. Uh, there's no Bojangles, In-N-Out, Canes, go to Corral, nothing. Now, listen, honestly, you ever got those folks in your life who always find something negative to say? Hey, raise your hand if that's true. Raise your hand. If they sit beside you, keep it low. Keep it low. Keep it low. But you know what I found, though? We're just like them. The disciples, the issue with them is they were so focused on what they could see. 
Because they could see desert, they thought that no one else could help them. We're just like them. In God's word, he talks about having a future for us and a plan for us and love for us and provision for us. But oftentimes, because we find ourselves in a hard situation, we simply go, ah, have you forgotten where I am? That sounds great, Jesus. Psalm 23 is oh so beautiful. But I am lonely. I can't pay my bills. I find myself struggling. So excuse me, that speech sounded great. But have you forgotten where I am? We're just like them. The issue for them is they believed as far as they could see. How many of us only believe as much as we can see? The issue with them is they left Jesus out of the equation. So they were right. They were helpless. Hope Church, whenever it comes to your problems and you leave Christ out of the equation, you are right. You cannot do anything. If they would have remembered Exodus 16, another deja vu moment, Old Testament, God's people now are free from Egypt. They find themselves in the desert. They're asking, God, how will you provide for us? And God rains down raisin bran from the sky and called manna, and he feeds them. It's the exact same moment if they would have only have remembered what God has done. Let me tell you something. Whenever you and I keep Christ in the equation, we won't have to question him. Whenever we keep Christ in the equation, we'll not have to question him. So before we go and castigate the disciples, let me ask you this question. What area in your life are you not convinced that Jesus is who he says he is and can do what he says he can do? To our next point, Jesus fully provides. Man, I love this point. All right. Christ just popped out 5,000 homemade fresh organic biscuits from his hand. His disciples see the whole thing, and they question him. But Christ does not get mad. He tends to have passion and compassion for forgetful disciples like you and I. He asked him a simple question. He says, uh, okay, I hear your question. How many loaves do you have? Now, here's the deal. This is free for you, okay? Whenever Christ asks a question in the Bible, it's rhetorical. He already knows the answer. He's not asking the question for him. He's asking for them. He's going, I want you to see that what you possess in your hands is not enough. Now listen, seven loaves, two fish, seven times two is 14. 4,000 people, that means you got 3,986 people and bread left. He goes, uh, where, where's it going to come from? He's going, what you have is not enough to feed 4,000 people. What you bring isn't adequate. He's trying to show them the same thing he's trying to show us. Hope Church, I don't care how much money you make. 
I don't care how smart you are. I don't care your, your degree or your pedigree. Whenever you come to Christ with just what you have, it will never, ever, ever be enough. Christ, for the past two decades, Christ has been hammering something in our souls. John 15, 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He's going, you got 14, you can feed 14 people. There's 3,986 souls left who are hungry. What you going to do? I love this. Christ says, you don't have enough, but I do. Christ now stacks the odds against himself. Okay, he's got to show up. 4,000 people, seven pieces, seven pieces of bread, two fish. They have not eaten in three days. That's like trying to feed the Raiders Stadium with one bag of popcorn. <laughs> Impossible. And the disciples finally get it right. They bring the little they have to Jesus. Well, Ricky, why is that? Because that's all they could do. And guess what? That's all he ever wanted them to do. I'll say it this way. The Lord can overshadow our poverty with his riches of grace. True story here about a young, skinny black girl from the Midwest. She would have a hard life. At five years old, she would be ushered into foster care. While in foster care, she'd be watching TV and, and see a house burning. It was informed to her that that was her aunt's house, that someone had threw a homemade bomb in the house, killing her mother, her grandmother, and a host of family. She would then be reunited with her father's side of the family, and she would walk into her grandmother's home to see a three-bedroom house with 21 people already living there. While there, sadly, her father and her uncle would inappropriately touch her. This would scar her. By all the stats, she was destined for Section 8 housing. But at age 16, someone saw the value of her. They shared the gospel with her. And that day she gave her life to Christ and she put her life in the Savior's hands. And that, that day her life would forever be changed. At the age of 18, she would graduate from high school, top of her class, first in her family. She would then get a scholarship to go into college, graduate top of her class, first in her family. She would then get a scholarship to go ahead and get her master's and graduate top of her class, first in her family. She would then begin to pursue her doctorate degree. She would then get married and have two kids. Oh, and by the way, she happens to be my wife. So don't tell me what God cannot do. You, you thought God couldn't work miracles with little things. Who told you that? Every time I look at my wife, She's a walking miracle that reminds me that what may be impossible for man is extremely possible with God. Yeah. You put a few fish in my hands, I can make you a little snack. Put a few fish in my Savior's hands, 
He can feed thousands. You put three nails in my hand, I can build you a small birdhouse. But you put three nails in my Savior's hand, and he provides salvation for the world. Because it all depends on whose hands it's in. So if you came in today <laughs> with doubting God's provision, sorry, my God provides. Why? Because it all depends on whose hands it's in. Christ says, bring me your little hope. Your little grace, your little perseverance, and watch me according to my will. Multiply that which should not be multiplied. Why? Because it all depends on whose hands it's in. What is Christ trying to tell you and I? He's saying that Jesus is the one who provides. He is the spiritual and physical bread of life. Amen? Amen. Amen. Man, y'all got me up here sweating, man. All right. Woo. Okay. And now to our last one. I, I hope by now you can see your Savior a little bit better. You don't serve an ordinary God. You don't. Um, now to our last one. Jesus completely satisfies his people. Verse 8, he says, they ate and they were satisfied. Now, I love this. Um, in the Greek, it translates to, the, it, it says in verse 4, the disciples asked a question. How can one feed these people? In the Greek language, that word is actually translated to the word satisfy. So it should read, how can one satisfy these people? The same word satisfy in verse 4 is also found in verse 8. Meaning, the disciples asked a question. Jesus, in all this desert, with no food and no water, how can somebody satisfy them? And in verse 8, Christ answers that question not by saying a word, but by showing a miracle. He's going, you were saying what again? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. You asked me how I could satisfy them. Watch my hands. How many of you right now have been brought back to life because Christ Jesus performed miracles in your life? Now, 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 Ricky, that was great. God provides, amen. But is God really satisfied? I, I, I hear you. Oh, I love the story of Rosie, amen. God provides, yeah, I love that. But I don't know if he really satisfies. Well, I believe our definition of satisfaction is off. Satisfaction is not about you getting your Christian wish list answered. Satisfaction is about whatever need you have, your God provides, and therefore you can lay back and go, I'm satisfied. That breaks my heart that we make God out to be a cosmic genie. He is not your vending machine. He is the Lord of Lords, meaning that whatever you need, he shall always supply, so therefore you can be satisfied. 
In verse 8, it says that they collected seven baskets full. Now, I'm going to show you satisfaction. In the, in the Bible, the, word, the number seven is the, word, the number of completion, right? So not only does he provide seven baskets full, but the word baskets, it means a, a very large hamper. It means that God not only fed their souls, but he gave them more and more and more and more and more and more and more. You get, the, you get my drift? Now, hopefully it can help you out. My wife, when she cooks, she's an amazing cook. When she cooks, I love her holiday meal, right? And when she cooks before the holidays, it's like, here's your food, you eat it, Tupperware clothes in the refrigerator, goodbye. But for Thanksgiving, oh, man, she cooks, and she leaves the dish on the stove as if to communicate, if you want some more, come back and get as much as you want. Jesus says, I don't just provide for you. But if you look at what I've done in your life, I have proven to you that whatever you need, you may come back again and again and again and again and again and again because I fully satisfy. Now, you may not believe me here. So let me say it to you this way. In Jesus, there's enough bread and more to spare. There's a fullness in Christ which he communicates to all who pass through his hands. I'm going to give you some scripture right now to prove my point. John 10, 10. He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I left heaven to come to earth to give you fullness of life. Psalm 107 says it this way. God, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. But John 4, 14 says it this way. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. Jesus fully satisfies. Whatever you need, he provides. True story here. A man named Carl Kishner one day was in the attic of his granddad's house. Came across a small white box. Opened the box and he found hundreds of small mint-conditioned baseball cards. Carl had no idea what these, car, what these cars meant, but there were some big names in there, Ty Cobb and Cy Young. So Carl took the cars to the auctioneer. The auctioneer opened the box and said, Sir, do you not understand what you have here? Mint-conditioned cars worth millions of dollars. For three generations, this man had treasure that he never even knew was under his roof. Week after week, we come in here as if our Savior is no big deal and you don't even know the treasure you have in Christ Jesus. Listen, listen, listen. In Jesus, God showed you his compassion. In Jesus, God showed you his provision. And in Jesus, he showed you his satisfaction. What more do you want? Let me tell you something. When God gave you Jesus, he gave you everything. When God gave you Jesus, he gave you everything. So what is Christ trying to tell these disciples? He's saying, listen, I'm the bread, salvation not only for the Jews, but also the Gentiles. What he's trying to tell us is this. 
Jesus is a universal bread. There is no life for anyone apart from him. So if you forget everything I said, don't forget my sermon in the sentence. We must be reminded that in his loving compassion, Jesus will always provide and satisfy. If you forget anything else, don't forget this Jesus. We must be reminded that in his loving compassion, Jesus will always provide and satisfy. Deja vu. Same scene, same gospel, same moment. But do you see him now? Let's bow our heads to pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this time. We can see your compassion, your provision, and that by seeing who you are, we might be fully and completely satisfied. Father, would you work and move in our hearts? This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Listen, we're going to have some pastors come down here in a few moments and I want to do one thing. I want to invite, if you are a Christian, I want to invite you back into the hands of God. If you need compassion, sympathy, come to him. If you need your knees met, come to him. If you find yourself trying to be satisfied by every other thing in your life and yet you are unsatisfied, come to the one who brings full satisfaction. But if you are not a Christian, I want to introduce you to the one who has splagnizo mind for your soul. Hear me. The greatest miracle was not providing biscuits from his hand. The greatest miracle was on the cross. On the cross of Christ Jesus, you would see God's compassion. For he had a love for broken, messed up people who did not love him. And on the cross... You would see God's provision. For God would simply say, son, die on their behalf because they cannot get to me unless their sin debt is paid. And on the cross of Christ Jesus, he would show satisfaction for he would satisfy the wrath of God and bring satisfaction for our debt that now you and I can be made right with God. This is a complete gospel. That Christ would live, that Christ would die, that Christ would rise that all who might believe in him may have complete life. So again, I ask you, as our pastors come, it's another moment of deja vu. Do you see him now? Have you understood what he was trying to teach you all those years ago? I, who satisfies your soul. So, I want to go ahead and rise. Let's stand. And as we begin to sing, if the Lord is leading you now to come down for prayer, come down comfort, we're here for you. And also, if you don't know Christ Jesus, I'm begging you to let me introduce you to him. Now, I'm going to 
As soon as we begin to sing, this is your moment to respond.